0: Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan.
1: And I'm Mason Adams. Last December, tornadoes ripped through our region, killing almost 100 people and leaving many more without homes. Thousands of people applied for federal assistance, but the government denied most of them.
2: I mean, no, no one that I know of in my neighborhood, no one has gotten assistance with FEMA.
0: And in 1972, a coal slurry dam broke in Logan County, West Virginia. It resulted in one of the worst catastrophes in U.S. history. Fifty years later, what do people remember about the Buffalo Creek flood?
3: And the house was floating, and our neighbors was on the back porch, and they was screaming, somebody
0: help us, somebody help us.
1: And we'll learn about West Virginia's first and only curling club.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week, Inside Appalachia.
1: Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
0: And I'm Caitlin Tan. In December, tornadoes tore across the Ohio Valley. Kentucky was especially hit hard. More than 10,000 residents applied for federal aid in the weeks following the storms.
1: But nearly two months later, not many people are receiving it. Jake Ryan with the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting has details.
4: Candace Sherman wasn't home when the tornado swept through around midnight in early December. And that's a good thing, because her home was completely destroyed.
5: It's gone. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to talk about.
4: But they talk about it a lot in Bremen, Kentucky, where dozens of homes were destroyed and 11 of the 77 people who died in the storms lived. Sitting around a neighbor's kitchen, they talk about people they know who died who got hurt, who lost everything, and who is rebuilding. But they don't really know anyone who's gotten much help from FEMA. Sherman had been in her mobile home for about a year. It was new, it was next to her mother's, and her son had a big room all to himself. She had insurance, but just enough to cover the mortgage. She was hopeful she'd get some help from FEMA.
5: I mean, just any amount of like assistance with money to replace, to get started like, replacing, trying to save money to rebuild.
4: She filled out an online application and was denied the next day because she had insurance.
5: I mean, it was heartbreaking because, you know, lost my home. They're supposed to help, and they're they're not helping.
4: (laughs) FEMA is a federal agency whose mission is to help people before, during, and after disaster strikes. But in Bremen and across Kentucky, there are thousands of people just like Sherman who are asking for help from FEMA and just not getting it. Within six weeks of the storm, nearly 12,000 people in Kentucky had registered for aid with FEMA, which can come as money for rent, home repairs, or other critical needs like food. And of those that applied, just 13% were deemed eligible by the federal agency. Simone Domang is a research fellow at the University of Oklahoma Southern Climate Impacts Planning Program, She says the issues in Kentucky, though unfortunate, are not really unique.
6: People from FEMA will, I believe, tell you this pretty readily, that people think of them as the Calvary, but that that is not what their agency really is uh, authorized to do.
4: FEMA agrees. In an emailed statement, a FEMA spokesperson stressed that FEMA is not set up to compensate for all loss or to make people whole again. As for Kentucky's low approval rate, they offered no additional insight. FEMA's assistance denial rates have dropped steadily in recent years. The Washington Post found last year that approval rates fell into the teens in 2021, down from more than 60% a decade before. There are systemic barriers, and it can be really confusing. For instance, FEMA often requires an individual person be denied a small business administration loan before they get any aid. Here's Domingue again.
6: We live in a country where we already have a social safety net that's really been chipped away over time. And so it's not surprising that for disaster aid, those programs are not robust enough to really guarantee that a person can recover fully after a disaster. Taking the opportunity
4: of downsizing to purge. An hour's drive from Bremen and Bowling Green, awesome. Patty Sawyer is still processing the tornado and cleaning up. Trying to keep a sense of humor. So this is like re- house looks
0: like a tornado hit it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sawyer owns her
4: home and has insurance, which she hopes will cover a bulk of the some sixty thousand dollars in damages. She needs new windows, foundation repairs, and some roof work. When she applied to FEMA, she expected the agency could help fill any gaps, but she was denied.
0: I'm not expecting, you know, FEMA and everything to come in and I'm gonna come out ahead in this. But I'd like to come out where I left off before this disaster
4: hit. In all, FEMA has provided more than $12 million to people in Kentucky for housing assistance and other critical needs. A FEMA spokesperson said anyone can appeal a rejection and they're encouraged to do so. Saw your plans to appeal, but she's waiting for her insurance claim to process, and she's worried she'll miss the deadline. For the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, I'm Jake Ryan.
0: Another Kentucky resident who lost her home in the storm is Kyla Staple.
1: Staple asked FEMA for assistance, but was denied. Here's what she told Jake Ryan at a park in Bowling Green, Kentucky.
0: Yeah, we
2: live on Creekwood, and so just a couple of houses down, it's like demolished. I mean, just like one street over is where the Brown family, like all of them passed away. And we were right there, you know, in the heart of the tornado, so our house... It damaged like half of the house. Our ceilings caved in like the day after the tornado. It took like half of our roof. They said that the reason why we were denied was because we had homeowner's insurance, but we have homeowner's insurance because it's the law. (laughs) You know, if you go through a mortgage company, then you have to have homeowner's insurance. I feel like there's a lot of people in this boat. I mean, no, no one that I know of, in my neighborhood, which I only know the neighbors, you know, around me, but no one has gotten assistance with FEMA. I think I just expected, um, I mean, I didn't expect them to duplicate what our insurance is doing, but I expected them to fill the gaps. Um, It's just frustrating that we can't get any assistance, or even like support, you know. Everybody that hears that we were in the tornado, they're like, go to to Sears, go to FEMA, like, they'll help you there. I'm like, you have no idea, you have no idea. Like, they are so unhelpful, I feel like, you know, like, um, and it's just being displaced and trying to explain it to my kids and dealing with all the stress of trying to get everything done and get other people to do their jobs so that we can get going and get back in our house like as quickly as possible and trying to do that like in a kind and loving way.
0: (laughs) That story was produced by Jake Ryan for the Amplified series from the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting.
1: The deadline to apply for FEMA aid has been extended to March 13th.
0: More info is at our website wvpublic.org.
1: Here on Inside Appalachia, we've been talking a lot about winter sports lately. Curling is one of those sports you really only hear about every four years when the Olympics come around.
0: And as Chris Schultz reports, a new club in Morgantown is capitalizing on the attention.
7: Four years ago, Morgantown Curling Club president Jeffrey Ryan was swept away watching the USA men's curling team win gold in Pyeongchang and he knew he wanted to try the sport for himself. The whole finesse about the game, you know, they're pushing a rock about 150 feet down the ice. There's these crazy sweepers that are somehow helping that that rock get to where it need to be. But after driving three hours round trip to play for 90 minutes in Pittsburgh, Jeff decided he wanted to play a little closer to home. He met up with other local curling enthusiasts, set up a GoFundMe, and before he knew it, Jeff had created the Morgantown Curling Club, the first and only curling club in the state. So I'm in a rental agreement with USA Curling, you know, and they gave us 3 sheets of of stones. A sheet is the lane in in curling. So it was 48 curling stones. The stones, which are made of granite from a select few islands in Scotland where the sport originated, weigh on average over 40 pounds. Jeff and a friend drove all the way to Wisconsin to pick up the 1 ton of stone to make playing Morgantown a reality. Part of that agreement with USA Curling is to hold Learn to Curl sessions to get the word out about the sport and to teach potential new members the way of the stone. At a recent Learn to Curl event at the Morgantown Ice Arena, the Morgantown Curling Club took to the ice just after 9 p.m. Club members had no time to waste in transforming the rink from a skating surface to curling sheets. While curling doesn't require its players to wear skates, It does require a special preparation of the ice, and time is always a factor.
8: (laughs) you're, You're watching us run around crazily because there are X number of jobs once the Zamboni dry cuts the
3: ice.
7: Heather Barclay and her husband Kevin started curling when they lived in Pittsburgh and were still making the drive up to play before they became founding members of the Morgantown Club. Preparations include melting the starting blocks into the ice, called hacks, chilling the granite stones, and measuring out the playing field.
3: Should we start?
8: I don't know if we should start. We'll just start. And then a couple of the other men that, that work, they draw the house because the house is a particular size.
7: That's the target curlers aim for. And the Morgantown curlers draw theirs on by hand using permanent markers and a homemade wooden guide. Unlike the lines for hockey, the curling lines are temporary. The Morgantown Curling Club has to share the ice with hockey teams and skaters and are lucky if they can get eight sessions, each lasting two to three hours at most, in one year. Finally, a hand pump sprinkler is used to dapple water across the ice, creating a layer of tiny ice pebbles. Those pebbles act like ball bearings that allow the game's 40-pound granite stones to glide across the ice. That's where the sport's most iconic piece of equipment, the broom, comes into play.
8: you sweep to melt the ice
7: waiting in the wings for their chance to curl stones and sweep ice are newcomers to the game the 24 or so participants for the club's learn to curl session newcomers like jason gossett and his wife christine
9: yeah this has been something we've wanted to do for several years we we've watched curling on the olympics for years we're finally excited to get a chance to actually do this
7: Club members rush through all that setup to ensure that participants like Jason have as much time as possible to learn and hopefully enjoy the sport before a hard-out of 11.15 p.m. Every moment preparing the ice is a moment someone's not curling. With the 2022 Olympic Games underway in Beijing, demand for curling has increased across the country, and as the only club in the state, Morgantown is no exception. I wanted to dedicate this year to teaching people, and now that we've got some folks that are excited about it and uh, want to come back, hopefully we'll have more just uh, scrimmaging dates next season. For now, West Virginia's pioneering curlers are just happy with the time they can get on the ice. And their biggest hope for next year is simple. More time.
1: <laughs> just barely.
7: For Inside Appalachia, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown, West Virginia.
1: After the break... We'll travel to southern West Virginia, where 125 people were killed when a coal slurry dam broke in 1972.
0: Fifty years later, the Buffalo Creek Flood is inspiring a new generation to take better care of the land and water.
9: I would go out with my grandfather, pick up trash, get, get me to work at something, and to be able to reap the reward of it. And to see where we are now and how far we've come is truly something, truly something to be proud of.
0: A documentary on the Buffalo Creek disaster in Logan County, West Virginia. That's after the break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan.
1: And I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right
4: back.
10: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
0: Fifty years ago, the Pittston Coal Slurry Dam burst in Logan County, West Virginia. It was one of the worst mine-related accidents in American history.
1: Jessica Lilly has this special documentary about the flood and what came after.
0: It's a cold and rainy
11: Saturday morning, February 26, 1972. Barbara Brunty went
3: into the kitchen to make pancakes for her four-year-old daughter, Donna. I could look out my kitchen window and see between houses, and I could actually see where the creek was. I couldn't see the creek at the time, but... Every little bit, you know, I just kind of look out. And I went in the living room, and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, two or three foot of water in the yard, you know, I'm getting a house. And I was picking things up out of the floor, you know, sitting above my counter just in case. And I looked out the window, and I thought, I can see the creek. I couldn't see the creek before. When I first got up, I could not see the creek. But I could see that it was coming up. So I walked back in the bedroom, and I told Arthur, I said, Arthur, you need to get up. I said, something has happened. I said, because the creek is rising too fast. So I walked back to the kitchen, and I looked out again. This is the strange part. (laughs) And you can't, without, unless you see it, you can't imagine it. But the water was above the creek bank but it didn't fall over it was standing high and I hollered at him then I said Arthur get up something's happened well he came through the house and when he came through the house somebody was banging on the door you know and Tom said y'all get out said the flood the water's coming and it
11: wasn't just water, it was 132 million gallons of coal slurry that rushed through the hollers of Logan County, West Virginia that day. A house picked
3: up, it didn't break up, it picked up, and it started floating. We lost the house, lost everything.
11: Brunty recalls rushing to higher ground with her husband Arthur and daughter Donna, helplessly watching her neighbor's houses wash up on a curb.
3: After Arthur got there, the house there was a house come floating down where the railroad track had been, and the house was floating, and our neighbors was on the back porch, Steve and Carol Looney, and they had, I think it was their daughter at the time, Sabrina, she was just young, and they was on the back porch, and they was screaming, somebody help us, somebody help us. And uh, they started... Arthur handed Donna back to me and he started back down the, following the house. He was on the bank, but he was following the house. And the houses was kind of washing up there in the curb. And they went down there and I really don't know what happened. Arthur said they walked across the top of the other houses or Steve and Carol, anyhow, they helped them get out. So they was all right, they were saved. It just kept raising. The water just kept raising it and going, you know. I didn't see any bodies, Arthur saw some bodies.
9: It was explained that recovery problems are now critical. They're bringing bodies out from time to time, and it's just felt by the governor's office, which is the office which is refusing to allow the news media into the area today, that it's just too critical a problem. There are approximately 700 National Guardsmen working in the area and 60 to 70 state police, all planned to be here for some time.
11: The Buffalo Creek disaster is considered one of the worst disasters in American history. 125 people lost their lives,
3: 1,100 were injured, and 4,000 people were left homeless. There was nothing. I mean, in our little community, everything was gone. No houses, no nothing. There's just mud. And I, I don't know how they really explain it, but there's just nothing there.
11: In the early 1900s, coal companies built 16 communities along Buffalo Creek. The people who lived there would work at these mines for decades. By 1972, more than 5,000 people lived in these communities in Logan County. Throughout the hollers, neighbors knew each other and made it a point to take care of each other. One of the mines in the region was operated by the Buffalo Mining Company, a division of the Pittston Company. Pittston stripped the mountain of soil, rock, and anything in the way of coal deposits. The company began dumping unwanted materials like clay and low quality coal as early as the 1940s close to the tiny town of Sanders along Buffalo Creek. Eventually, during the 1960s, the company and the workers built three makeshift dams without an engineering plan or strong materials. Then in 1966, a mine disaster in another part of the world got the attention of regulators in the U.S. In the country of Wales in the U.K., a mine dam had broken and killed 147 people. One hundred sixteen were children. The following year in 1967, the U.S. Department of Interior told West Virginia officials that the Pittston dams were unstable and dangerous. But on February 26th, 1968, four years to the day before the Buffalo Creek Dam failure, West Virginia inspectors didn't issue any charges. The third dam actually failed in 1971, but Dam No. 2 did its job and held the water from the communities. The company was cited in 1971 for 5,000 safety violations, but fought each one and ended up paying $275 of the $1.3 million levied in fines. Federal inspectors visited Dam No. 3 on Tuesday, February 22, 1972, just days before it failed. They found the dam, quote, satisfactory. After days of rain, typical to a late West Virginia winter, the dams broke. It had rained like this before. One of the communities even flooded before. People had evacuated before for false alarms. Max Dody was a Logan County Sheriff's deputy at the time and recalls the reactions he heard from people in 1972 when he told them to head to higher ground. Here's Doty sharing this story back in 1992. I heard
10: this before. He said, "If some of us have stayed out on the mountainside, every time it rains hard, there, that we uh, get out and, and uh, people start saying the dam's going to break, the dam's going to break." And said, so "We've stayed out on the mountainside all night and with uh, by being scared by after it rains real hard." And said, uh, "You can't pay no attention to this." I said, "Well." I'm just doing my job. I was told to come up here, that the superintendent of the coal company called it, there's danger that it might break.
11: The disaster did damage in all 16 communities. Mann Junior High School was turned into a morgue. This is a
9: temporary moor in Mann Junior High School's gymnasium where Senator Randolph has come to console the bereaved and the people waiting to find out if relatives of theirs will be brought in here dead or hopefully alive.
11: When the floodwaters receded on that same day, Barbara Brunty recalls several families finding refuge on a
3: hill in a home in Lundale. We walked up the track, and one of the neighbors there, Coley and Grant Gamble, they lived up on the hill, and that was the gathering place. They just opened up their doors, and everybody was there, you know. And we stayed there, I'm thinking, three nights
11: from there, Brunty and her daughter Donna went back to her hometown in nearby Lincoln County to stay with her mom while Arthur stayed to work and look for a new place to live. Brunty says the timeline is a little fuzzy, but she remembers eventually moving into a HUD
3: trailer in Green Valley on Huff Creek, just outside of Man. I never did like a storm. My house uh, where I lived at in Lincoln County, lightning struck a tree when I was real little, but I remembered that and I was always afraid of storms. Mm-hmm. That didn't help. <laughs> That oh, it would rain and the thunder and the lightning and just really, really bad storms that whole time that we was there.
11: Pittston Coal Company denied responsibility for the devastation that happened on that rainy
3: day. It called the dam failure an act of God. It wasn't an act of God. That was negligence, more than likely negligence
11: three investigations concluded Pittston was to blame for the disaster. There were years of legal battles and a major disaster to clean up. At first, the Army Corps of Engineers helped with recovery and cleanup, and the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development set up some trailers for people to live in, but a fraction of what was promised and needed. After the initial federal response, the job of cleaning up and rebuilding ultimately fell to the people who decided to come back and live near
3: Buffalo Creek, people like Barbara Brunty
11: and her family
3: there's been a lot of work (laughs) a lot of work when we first moved back uh, when we first cleaned up right where our house was at it was they piled a lot of stuff you know when it was cleaning up it was a bottom and they but they had all that cleaned up and it was just flat land when we moved back
11: politicians promised 750 new public housing units but the town saw 17 mobile homes and about 90 apartments But starting over wasn't just about building new housing. Brunty says the disaster changed the community in other
3: ways, too. You don't know your neighbors anymore. (laughs) You know, before it was more of a close-knit. You knew everybody in the community. And now people are kind of in and out. So many people left. It affected people in different ways. Most definitely affected people in different ways. Some people couldn't go back. But afterwards, it's still our community. You know, it's, it's our, that's where we live. We have a responsibility to help keep it clean.
11: Early on, residents of the Buffalo Creek community started picking up litter, and the work
3: kind of became a hobby. You know, instead of us cleaning up our spot and them cleaning up their spot, it became communities, you know. They organized it very well. We did it ourselves for the longest time. We did our, you know, we picked up garbage. Of course, litter wasn't the only environmental problem. There was also the problem of black
11: water, the wastewater from coal mines. Today, the water is much cleaner than it was even before the disaster. But
10: years ago, the coal companies would dump black water in the creek anyway. They They can't do it no more.
11: Perry Harvey has lived in the area his whole life. Standing beside the creek, just across from the Buffalo Creek disaster memorial for the people who died, Harvey remembers the state of the creek during the initial cleanup efforts.
10: Well, at that time when the Corps of Engineers come in here, uh, they basically just dredged the creek and changed the route of the road, the main highway. After the flood, there wasn't no habitat for the fish.
11: At the time, not even the governor, Arch Moore, believed the river could hold trout.
10: First of all, I want to say to my fellow Americans, trout could never survive in this stream. These are warm water streams. This has to be an incorrect characterization of the type and the quality of water and the type and quality of fish that propagate there.
11: But Harvey and his neighbors believed trout could survive in the creek. To do it, the creek would need to be restocked by the West Virginia Department of Natural Resources. But it's true that, at the time, Buffalo Creek was in no condition to support fish. In 2005, Harvey and some of his neighbors formed the Buffalo Creek Watershed Association. The watershed group covers about 20 miles of stream from the tiny, unincorporated towns all the way from Curtis to Mann, West Virginia. Their goal was to get Buffalo Creek on the state's DNR trout stocking schedule. But to do it, it would take even more work from the community and regulators, and a lot would have to change.
10: We started cleaning the highways up and the creek and getting all the stuff out of it. And then uh, there was a biologist came down and uh, run a test of the pH level, how cold the water was and stuff.
11: The creek needed to be cool and clean, and it also needed to be reshaped like a natural river. Standing beside Buffalo Creek Memorial Highway on a ledge above the river, Harvey points to some stacked rocks while water gently rolls over it.
10: And what you're looking at there is a cross vein made out of rock. And what it does, it puts oxygen in the creek and makes the holes of water deeper so that fish can stay in those holes of water. By the flow of the water coming over the rocks, it it will form a pool, and the oxygen comes off of the rocks, and it puts more oxygen in and keeps the water cool.
11: The association worked with Appalachian Stream Restoration to install 192 of these rock structures over a 16-mile stretch in almost two years. The West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection funded most of the project with about $750,000 worth of grants while a coal company donated the rocks.
10: The hardest part was getting the uh, litter cleaned up to show the DEP and the DNR that we were we were going to stick with this thing and we we're going to do it and we want y'all to be a part of it. And they, they got on board. And we they've been working with us, and to this day, they still work with us.
11: The work of the Buffalo Creek Watershed Association paid off. Today, the creek supports habitat for trout. Former West Virginia DNR Commissioner Keith Wilson worked with Harvey and the community during the cleanup process.
9: When the Watershed Association here decided to, to try to do it, they started testing the water, and then, of course, the DNR sent their... Um, trout biologist up and looked at it, tested the water and it was acceptable to trout. So we we went from there and stocked.
11: Buffalo Creek was added to the monthly stocking schedule in 2006 after improvements in water quality and fish habitat. The work even caught the attention of the state in 2013 when the Buffalo Creek Watershed Association won the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection Cabinet Secretary Award. The communities affected by the disaster have been cleaning up and rebuilding for 50 years. Now, there's a new generation that's continuing that work in their own way. Man, High School students complete hours of community service before they graduate, and many of those hours are completed by youth cleaning litter and debris along Buffalo Creek. Some kids put in the work at an even younger age during quality family time. When Barbara Brunney's two grandsons were little, she would often take them
3: to help with cleaning up. You have to start with the kids to not to do right, you know to not throw stuff out your window in the car. Neither one of them boys right now will throw anything out of the car. They don't. That was us, you know, we took we took them. We wanted them to know, you know. They helped us pick up garbage, you know, and I think their mother told them at one time if they come in, they said they was bored. They'd say, well, here, take this bag and go clean up the creek right in front of the house. <laughs> go pick up the cartridge. You're bored? Here,
11: there's something to do. Bronte's grandson, Hunter Montgomery, grew up along Buffalo Creek with a passion for hunting
9: and fishing. Once we started throwing lines out in the water, that was that was as far as it went. We were hooked. Fish got hooked, we got hooked, and it just took off from there.
11: Montgomery's in college. He remembers
9: those cleanup days with his family. I would go out with my grandfather, pick up trash, because it was an initiative. Get, get me to work at something and, to be able to reap the reward of it. It was also an initiative to encourage people. that's come together as a community. We can start putting these fish in here, but a, they're not just going to magically appear. You have to put in an effort.
11: Montgomery also remembers being about eight years old when Buffalo Creek was added to the state's trout-stocking schedule.
9: Being that young as a child and then all of a sudden being told, hey, there's trout in the creek that are a pound, pound and a half, half a pound, and they're bigger than what you're normally catching, uh, you're tickled to death. You didn't see all the hard work until I got much older and much more involved.
11: Now Montgomery is working on a degree in civil engineering technology at Fairmont State University.
9: As far as environmental work goes, that's something that really drives me. I, I like environmental work. I like what it's about. Uh, I like being able to, you know, you collect samples of water and what goes into the stream and calculating drainage areas and all that to be able to, to come together. And, you know, if the numbers fit, the, the, li- the life that's in the creek fits. And something like you know, growing up on the creek and meeting these types of people and seeing what they do and hopefully are still doing, uh, really puts, puts it in a frame of mind that that's something that I wanna do as well. That's something that, that does drive me to be a better civil engineer and to come back and do environmental work, if not here other places to just improve what world I have around me.
11: The Buffalo Creek Watershed Association also created an annual event called Fish Day in 2004. At the beginning of Logan County School's spring break, the group passes out food, fishing lessons, and supplies.
9: We had pizza. We had free rods and reels. Uh, All the kids who were there got one. We got to see the stock truck come up the creek. Uh, I know what a stock truck looks like now, following it anywhere in the state of West Virginia due to the fact that I've watched that stock truck so much as a kid I knew like the the that, that was a fun part that I do remember very vividly is watching them dip the trout out of the truck put the trout in the creek and it was rewarding to see that even as a kid
11: the fishing poles and food come from local businesses the association gives away about 125 fishing rods reels and tackle and it
10: makes you feel good to have the kids be able to get out and enjoy fishing and catching fish.
11: These days, as a board member, Perry Harvey is still involved with the Buffalo Creek Watershed Association. He says he envisioned Fish Day as the beginning of a brighter future for the region. Along with environmental challenges, the region has struggled with an opioid addiction epidemic.
10: We felt like it was if we could get the kids involved in fishing, that It may turn some of them around from maybe growing up and being uh, on drugs and stuff and maybe enjoy fishing instead of the drugs.
0: Fish
11: day might offer free rods and reels to kids, but it holds a special meaning for some of
3: the adults in the region. You know, it's not just fish day. It's community day. You know, everybody goes, if you don't have kids. You still come, you know, you get a hot dog, you get a piece of pizza, you get to talk to your neighbors that you may not even see any other time. It's our community day, and it's not just Buffalo Creek. You know, we tell everybody, you know, you live, you live in Logan, come on up, we're having fish day. You come up, you know, fish with us, have a hot dog, a pizza, you know, enjoy it. Brunty says Fish
11: Day was an important part of the community to fight its way back from the coal waste flood and find a new identity. The region in Logan County was lined with small, close-knit coal mining towns before the disaster. While there's still some mining around, Fronty says the community has had to come together with a focus on a cleaner
3: environment. That's who we are, you know. You clean up, you know. Do we like picking up garbage? No. It's somebody else's garbage. We don't throw it out, but we pick it up.
11: The identity of making the environment a priority seems to be cresting the borders of Buffalo Creek. There's people from Kentucky, Virginia, and Charleston who now come to Man West Virginia to spend time fishing. For Hunter Montgomery, Buffalo Creek is more than the story of disaster he grew up learning.
9: You, you see pictures, you can look them up online of something like that that happened to see where we are now and how far we've come is truly something truly really something to be proud of.
11: Montgomery watched his family work so hard to recover from the Buffalo Creek disaster. Now he refuses to let that trauma and work be in vain.
9: When you see somebody that's been through that, but then they're right there with you and they're picking up the creek, you you kind of lean toward that. And it takes good leaders, good solid leaders to have something like we have now. And as far as the effect that it's had on me, it makes me want all the more to go out, clean up the creek, make her proud, make the people around me proud, make the people who know me proud by going out, putting myself out there, getting the creek cleaned up, continue this trout stocking initiative program, and it is an amazing thing that I have seen that has come to pass.
3: I don't think you ever finish recovering from something that traumatic. It's always... uh, it's always there. It may not be right there, but it's there. It's in you. It's deep. There's always a part of you that goes back there. When there's a storm, I don't want to be by myself. I get scared still it, and it's it's getting easier. But it's been 50 years. <laughs> but it's getting easier. I do not like a storm. And I know there's other people who have it harder than I do with a storm. But no you're still recovering, you're still moving forward, you're still working on it, you know. And like I said, some lost a lot more than I lost. Fifty
11: years ago, Barbara Brunty lost the community she knew. But over time and through the work for her neighbors coming out of that tragedy, she's part of a community that has a new meaning
3: and purpose. We got something. We got something. You know, we can offer people where our kids. You know, my my grandkids. I like to fish. I'm not good at it, but I like to fish. But that was something my family could do. You know, we we on Buffalo Creek. We no, we don't have a lot on Buffalo Creek, but we got our fish. You know, you can go out and there's people fishes a lot. You know, you come up and down, there'll be somebody out there fishing. The creek is clean.
9: It just makes me feel good to know what I was part of it. Whether you're a local from Man, West Virginia, or you're from Charleston, West Virginia, Princeton, West Virginia, or Pikeville, Kentucky, and you come down and you, you have a good time, hey, that's, that right there is what it's all about. It's here for all of us to enjoy. We just have to take care of what we got. Enjoy, don't destroy, would be what I left you with.
1: We've been listening to a documentary, about the Buffalo Creek flood, produced by West Virginia public broadcasting reporter Jessica Lilly. It was made possible in part by the National Coal Heritage Area Authority.
0: You can also learn more about the Buffalo Creek disaster in the latest edition of Golden Seal magazine. And today's episode with a story about a little Swiss village in the hills of West Virginia. Helvetia is a rural town nestled close to the Monongahela National Forest. Residents can trace their heritage back to Switzerland, and the town preserves and shares their culture and traditions through famous festivals like Fasnacht, which happens around this time of year.
1: In Helvetia, you can sample Swiss dishes at the Hute restaurant and browse local goods at Swiss Roots, the community store. One of these goods is a homemade cheese called Appalachian Alpine. Its makers are a retired couple whose new hobby has revived a lost recipe. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin reports.
6: I'm in the basement kitchen of Theron Morgan's house in Helvetia, West Virginia. Lining the shelves are rows and rows of home canned goods, and we're halfway through the process of making a block of cheese. It kind of gets milky at first, Kind of a lumpy, like a soured milk. She's describing a pot full of cheese curds, which she's elbows deep in, carefully cutting the warm curds up by hand. It just feels like, um, oh goodness, like jello. Theron is a third-generation descendant of Swiss immigrants. Her grandfather moved to Helvetia in the 1870s when the community was just forming.
8: Um, my uh, family was from the Bern, the Canton
6: Bern, from the Sonnen area, and that was the Bettlers. When Theron's husband Russell retired recently, the couple wanted to pick up a new hobby. They settled on making cheese, but not just any cheese. Theron and Russell wanted to make the kind of cheese Theron's grandfather and other early Helvetia residents made. But that would mean reviving a family tradition that had been dormant for decades. A tradition that takes knowledge, skill, and the right environmental conditions. Theron didn't have her grandfather's recipe after he passed, but she knew her neighbor Nancy could help.
5: She just said Nancy, will you you show me how to make cheese? And I said, yes.
6: That's Nancy Gain, and we're miles away from each other connecting via Zoom. Her ancestors are from the same region in Switzerland as Theron's, and she remembers her mother making cheese as a child, the same kind of cheese Theron's grandfather made.
5: And it was the same recipe that everyone made here. And uh, I believe it was what was made high up in the Alps.
6: With Nancy's guidance, Theron was able to recreate the recipe and knowledge of cheesemaking that had been lost in her family.
5: We just went down, and I told her, you know, what I knew and what just from from experience of how I did it.
6: But Theron needed more than just a recipe to make this particular type of cheese. She needed a key ingredient: fresh cow milk. Theron didn't have her own dairy cow, and neither did Nancy.
5: Well, it, it's it's hard because no one. No one wants to milk. You know, if if they raise cattle, it's usually a uh, beef cattle and not, they don't want to have a, a family cow. Used to be everybody had to have a family cow to have milk. It's not that way anymore.
6: Theron has a friend nearby that still has a milk cow, so she's able to get the necessary ingredient.
8: We're really blessed to be able to live in a place where it's not just that you have neighbors but you have family when you know your neighbor needs something they come and you give it to them it's just no big deal you know it's not like you don't have to pay this back you know I took some cheese up to my neighbor one day and he come back and the next thing I know he's not going to adore with the package of sausage, you know, because he had made sausage that day. It's just a real
6: um, family-oriented type of situation. With help from her neighbors, Thayrin was on her way to making her first batches of cheese. Thayrin's husband, Russell, even built them their very own cheese cave, a cold and humid storage room right in their basement. Now, they had the perfect controlled climate for aging cheese.
8: All the old farmers was making cheese in their kitchen, And then they were curing it or aging it in their cellar. And in those cellars, you have dirt floor, um, rocks that are, you know, are moldy and, you know, a perfect situation for aging cheese.
6: With the right recipe, the essential ingredients, and the ideal environment, Theron and Russell's hobby took off. The nostalgic taste of the cheese reminded community members like Nancy of the cheese their parents and grandparents used to make.
5: Also it's good <laughs> uh, you know we, we all like it and it's a special treat so we you know we try to have it and, and uh, it's like oh I've got some I've got some homemade cheese you know
6: Cheese making is a laborious process and many community members don't take the time and effort to make it these days. Demand for the cheese began to soar and Theron and Russell started to sell their cheese, which they call Appalachian Alpine, down at Swiss roots. The local Helvetia market.
8: And it was a surprise when we took the
6: first load down to them the first week, and within 24 hours, they were out. West Virginia has expansive cottage food laws that allow individuals to sell products, including milk based products like cheese, that are made in their own homes.
8: And it is a delicacy. It's, you know, we're the only ones, in, you know, Helvetia people are the only ones that has ever made that we know of this type of cheese that it was brought over, the recipe was brought over with our ancestors from Switzerland. And so it was a, a tradition that was being shut down. So the legislature uh, was nice enough, some of the uh, members was nice enough to create a bill to waiver all of that. So now that we can uh, make the cheese in our own kitchen and and cure it in the cellars.
6: Although the cheese is now available in the community, there's a real concern Theron has about Swiss traditions like cheese making being lost as the younger generations move away. So she's made sure to share this recipe and process with her granddaughter, Georgia.
8: Well, she's always been very much into, like, canning foods and um, doing all kinds of different things. And, uh, like, we've made things like dandelion jelly and, like, just a bunch of cool different things. So it wasn't too strange when she started making cheese.
6: Georgia doesn't live in Helvetia, but she visits every so often and has enjoyed learning the process of cheese making alongside her grandmother.
8: I... I think it's really fun um after you boil it and then like you have to cut it and um the part where you stick your arm in or like your hand in to like get the cheese curds all separated that's my favorite part because it's so soft and like smooth and then your hands feel so soft afterwards i have um a couple of friends though that have come up and they like refuse to put their hand in it because they thought it was gross but i love it
6: Seeing the enthusiasm of Georgia gives Theron hope that the community of Helvetia will grow again and preserve not just the tradition of cheese making, but other Swiss traditions as well.
8: There are several of us my age is still here in the community, but I think that's why we want to make sure that our kids and our grandkids know how to do these things, like making cheese and canning and things like that. So we know that that Type of thing, and those traditions are carried on. Even the the Swiss traditions, like the folk dancing and the you know all that type of thing. Um, so we know that that will be carried on to the next generation.
6: Making a block of cheese isn't just a day's work. It takes weeks or months to age the cheese to perfection. If you have the patience and dedication, however, the result is delicious.
5: I like it on uh, with homemade bread and tomato sandwich, or just slice it
6: with a glass of wine. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin.
1: Lauren's story is part of our Folkways series. By the way, Helbisha celebrates Fashnot every year in late February. We did a story on it a few years ago. Check it out on our website, wvpublic.org. Before we go, we wanted to share a kind message we received recently from a new podcast listener. Hey, this is Nolan from Roanoke, Virginia, I just recently moved to Southwest VA and I discovered inside Appalachia. As an educator and outdoors enthusiast, I've always had a passion for our mountains and the cultures that have grown up around them. Uh, I really believe this podcast feeds my interest as I discover new music, I hear inspiring tales of humanity, and I even learn of new rugged adventures that await here in the mountains. It's honest, it's raw, but it's also optimistic, and it really shines a positive light on our region. Um, It it just demonstrates that the modern narrative is just as fascinating as the old. Nolan, thanks for listening to Inside Appalachia. We love hearing from our listeners. If you have feedback, you can write us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. You can even record an audio message, and we may play it on the show.
0: Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia.
1: Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Tom Brighting, Billy Goat Gruff, and Dinosaur Burbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our interim executive producer is Eric Douglas. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia.
0: You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.